I am Carl Fieser. I'm an AI developer evangelist at Lockheed Martin. And I've been, I've got a new like coffee grinder that grinds it right before it drips coffee for me. So I'm really lazy in the morning. Uh, but I take it like black with a little bit of unsweetened non-dairy creamer. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another MLOps community podcast. I am your host, Dimitriosa, and I'm here with Abby. What's going on, Abby? Interesting conversation today. Yeah. Sorry. This one, we went very philosophical for a moment, and I love talking about that. It reminds me of my college dorm room, smoking a bunch of weed and philosophizing on the meaning of life. These are topics I think most of us have discussed about. I think we started to talk about imparted cognition biases. We talked about how to define intelligence, which I think at this point in time is an important conversation to have again after the super intelligence book. And I think with all the work in foundational and generator models, I think it is a really good time to have that conversation once again. Yes. So for anyone that has not read it, check out his paper all about defining intelligence. I feel like he's, we are very kindred spirits. When it comes to Carl, he was talking about how he wrote that paper because this idea of artificial intelligence was starting to gain traction again. There are so many different people that are calling it so many different things or have so much expectation around it and it's really not clear what we mean by intelligence and he broke it down in the paper he broke it down in the conversation today and then we went on a few philosophical tangents but we brought it back around because at the end of the day he's doing a lot of ml ops stuff and especially inside of his company he's evangelizing ml ops and he had some really cool thoughts on where we're going when it comes to the future of these large language models with respect to MLOps, the takeaway that I loved was that he was saying, look, we've been able to just make people more efficient for the last, since computing began, that's really been what we've do, been doing. I think we might as well just get into the conversation. What do you think, Abby? Subscribe to our newsletters, get into our Slack, and keep listening to the podcast. Give us glowing reviews. We love to read reviews. We've received one or two recently. Oh, but I yeah, think we me... get more comments on our uh, YouTube. Yes, people comment on the fact that I should never play musical instruments again in my life. So if that is you listening telling me to not play musical instruments. Thank you. We love those kind of comments and reviews also. Keep them coming. It's awesome to hear it. All right, let's get into it. So I want to start at the very starting because basically you've been in the center of the AI communities for so long and we are sort of in the process of trying to build up on it. So I want to get your tips and learn from you. You launched season one of the R Developer Podcast. What do you think is the key to a successful podcast? Um, That's a good question. Um, I actually don't know if I'd call that a successful podcast, especially compared to this one. Like, it was something <laughs> our marketing team was like, hey, we should do a podcast. I was like, great, I'll do a podcast. Because I'd always wanted to do one. I was getting into like music production. 
So I had nice. all the stuff and I was like, I'll do the soundtrack. I'll do everything myself. <laughs> so it was mostly like a production learning experience, but it's really just something I really like doing. Cause we had this startup like ecosystem since I was working at arm, like we had our startup partners who were focused on ML on the edge. And I was like, Hey, it'd be great to chat about all of them because they each did like something very specific. And that's kind of what their startup focused on. Like edge nice. impulse, for example, we talked about transfer learning, but there's a lot of commonality between managing a community and managing a podcast because it's like regular cadence. And this is mostly like what I've read and theoretical in terms of the things that make them both work well are like a community to follow them. And the podcast acts as like this kind of nice, um, regular cadence metronome that they're like, Oh, I should basically these things that remind people to stay involved and stay in touch. Like ML ops is still pretty new and like they're like more and more people want to be learning about it. So building this kind of culture of like assistance and things. Um, and that's kind of what gets people to stick around. It's like you bring them in with the podcast and they stick around and the same things work with like developer relations anywhere. It's like, you do an event and then you're like, hey, stay with us because we'll give you beta access or like free hardware or GPU credits. <laughs> yeah, GPU credits, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I 100% agree with you on that. It also helps people feel like they know you and they get to know like what this community is about through the, com through the podcast and they get to know like what the vibe of the community is also in a way. And, uh, so I, I want to talk a little bit about this open source toolkit that you have for AI that uh, you have played around with. But first, the big question that's going on through my head right now and has been since I jumped on this call with you is which of these like five instruments behind you do you play the most? Oh, um, the longest is probably the guitar the guitar from a, high school is that a gibson uh it's an epiphone so it's the it's like the white label gibson it's a good eye i was like it was high school and i was like i shouldn't spend money on a gibson i'll buy an epiphone <laughs> um and this one i've actually like um the internal like pickup it's like a, an acoustic electric the internal pickup died like 10 years ago so i ended up cutting a <laughs> hole and putting a new one in and like filling it in with like wood putty so it's kind of Classic. this weird Frankenstein guitar at this point. Next time that happens, I'm just going to put in like a a weird synth like pickup and just run it into pure menu. All right. Yeah. So tell tell me about this open source toolkit. Oh yeah. So currently I'm at Lockheed Martin as an an internal developer advocate. So I don't do anything external anymore. Which part of me kind of misses because a lot of it was like, I love doing events. It's like a party for all my favorite developer friends. Um, but now it's internal. So it's like, it's got its pluses, its pros and cons. But it is, I mean, it is kind of like this controlled box. And Lockheed Martin's a big enough company that I, I'm never going to get bored. And it means like it's easier to stay in touch with people because we're all on the same Slack and they can't leave because they work with me. So I can, <laughs> they can't hide them. They, they can't, can't hide. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I do a lot of work, um, with like a sister team called the AI factory and what they do is focus on basically infra ops and ML ops, and they manage a bunch of servers and software stack, mostly open source stuff like Kubeflow is probably the biggest thing underlying everything that we work on. Um, and 
kind of, and then our, their job is to manage it and kind of keep it deployed and manage access and kind of make it as easy as possible for our machine learning engineers to hop on that. Uh, so it, the onboarding ramp is really as easy as possible. And then as an advocate, I'm adjacent to them to try to help get more people to use it and also teach them how. Oh, so you're just going around inside the company and I imagine you're dealing with machine learning engineers and potentially sometimes some data engineers or data scientists and you're telling them, look, this is the best thing that we've got right now. You don't have to worry about getting anybody from procurement involved on this new tool that you want to buy and adding it, see how we can hook it up to what we've got already. And so if you want the easy zero to one for your project, use the platform that we supply. Yeah, a hundred percent. There is some other stuff in other parts of Lockheed Martin, like that are um, like paid for tools. And so we're kind of, some of those we also try to support, but we're also trying, like the AI factory is relatively new compared to those where it's like internal hardware offering managed by internal people running pretty much all open source tools. Um, wow. So it's kind of the best of all worlds. Um, and yeah, I try to get them on. Also, a lot of times it's not machine learning engineers or like data science specifically. Sometimes we do like upskilling with like mechanical engineers and they're like, hey, I should know about artificial intelligence and machine learning because oh, there wow. are applications and sometimes those teams work together. Um, so that's also a lot of fun. It's people who are kind of sometimes even new to programming, just getting started with machine learning. So, uh, Dude, that is so cool. So speaking about evangelizing, are there things that you would say are effective ways of evangelizing within a company? Like if I wanted to go around in my company and try and get people on the same page as me to use this cool platform that I have, what are ways of doing that? I've heard some of our guests talk about like uh, Leanne Fitzpatrick, she comes to mind. She's like head of data at the Financial Times. And she spoke about this push-pull. And really it was for her, you can't push people into using anything. You have to kind of entice them and show them the benefits without forcing the benefits on them. Do you have evangelizing, internal evangelism tricks that you use? Uh, yeah. So internal evangelism is very much like external evangelism. And the, the biggest like, um, preventative for people learning a new skill or technology, it's still like the time and having to learn something new. And like, you still have to convince people that it's worth their time through various reasons. And like cost is normally not a big reason. Um, ease is probably one of the best performance is like less of a good reason um because most of the time if you're learning you're like i don't care about performance i just want something to work and to be easy um so yeah it's kind of and you can't push people into it and people especially internally if you're like sorry we're not using this technology anymore we're shifting over here they still get very mad when you kick them off their stuff so like making that easy as easy a transition as possible um like transparency, like you said, like the whole reason you do a podcast so people can get to know you, like you got, a, they, they have to trust you and evangelism. I, I talked to a rabbi in Africa once and she like, 
she we really had good conversations around evangelism i'm like yeah it's basically the same thing it's like you're being very wow. like you're supposed to be a source of trust and uh you're trying to convince people to do something and they're like oh, i don't know if it's worth it i'm not buying into it so far um so like it's it's trust um and you kind of just show them your process uh one thing i started recently and we're playing around with is like internal office hours but since it's all um internal we're like well you're you're just gonna watch me build something and when it breaks you're gonna oh, watch so me good. try to fix it uh and so far it's like an experiment but it's like yeah show them you're a person and things are hard and it's still learn we're all learning stuff i like to make <laughs> things a little bit funny um i like i to, i was like an improv kid in high school um so i really like doing that um but i would always build funny silly weird projects like trick voice activated trick-or-treat dispensers or um i built a dog snore detection thing really early in the pandemic when i was like i need some reliable source of data and uh my fiance is a french bulldog so it always just sit at my feet and just snore like a chainsaw i was like that's that's a great i can tell when the dog's asleep or not um and it's like silly stupid problems but i use like real techniques to like detect you could use the same thing to detect chainsaws in the woods probably actually the same model yeah. okay let's get into your paper yeah let's talk about this because i know that when we reached out to you and we wanted to get you on here you thought we wanted to get you on here because of lockheed martin but really i was more interested like you came into my ecosystem through your paper so maybe you can give us a bit of context on what you wrote and why you wrote it i think it was early in the pandemic i was at arm um and this was with a co-worker andrew sloss who'd been at arm i don't know he he'd been around for at arm like 20 years so he was one of the people who'd been around there the longest so his background's like definitely more heavy on the engineering and we both just started clicking around like philosophy and artificial intelligence and i was on the marketing side and like the hype cycle of artificial intelligence and people talking about it and just kind of like this disposable term got us really, I, I wouldn't say upset, but we were very focused on let's define what people mean when they say artificial intelligence. And by that, let's define what people mean when they say intelligence, because that's just a huge, it's, it's a big, I mean, it's really a philosophical question still in terms of what is intelligence. So we kind of went into the different ways we know how to measure it. Um, and then different like scientists and philosophers through the years who have, you know, peeked into like cognitive science and things like that and cognitive philosophy and how can we ground some of the things we say and put a metric to it in terms of what do we mean when we say intelligence and what are the attributes that define intelligence? And so we kind of dived into like different aspects, like there's problem solving, there's communication, uh, there's like free thinking, there's like, um, like abstract thought is one. Um, so all of those kind of build in together into this nebulous blob that we call intelligence and then throw it at like machine learning products. Let's break it down. We've yeah. seen three different terminologies, uh, used. One is intelligence. And I know Turing, when he wrote his paper, he was like, oh, machines are going to be intelligent. And this is my definition of what makes something intelligent. 
The second is what we call artificial intelligence, and that's also sort of murky based on like the 1958 meetings and then the 1990 works and all of that. And the other is a new term that we've been hearing, which is basically machine intelligence that is sort of trying to create a more defined definition. What do you think is the difference between them? Which intelligence do you think are we closer to? And what's the one intelligence that we absolutely will never be able to touch? Oh, that's a, I don't think I can say anything about never being able to touch because I think anybody involved with artificial intelligence or machine learning, like the constant goal is, you know, mimicry of human intelligence. And the question is like, when or how, and like, will I see it? So I can't say never in terms of some things. So um the first one was alan turing's definition of intelligence and that was mostly uh if i remember right it was kind of if you can't tell the difference between something that's intelligent and this machine then it is intelligent so it's like this intelligence by kind of assumption or proxy and um that one i don't like because it's too philosophical and it's too much in the eye of the like observer um and human are like humans are not great observers of reality um uh, it also slides into like a little bit of solopism solipsism solipsism um where i don't i don't believe anybody else on this planet is intelligent and you can't prove me wrong so and like that's also the flip side of that ob observable intelligence which is important and I think that's an important characteristic, but it's also like you end up in the uncanny valley of like, it's it seems intelligent until it gets a little bit too intelligent. And then you're like, oh, that's definitely a computer. It's too good at math. And then it slides up a little bit. It's like animation uncanny valley. Um, so it's a harder thing to like lock down just because there's all this other things going on with it. And it's it's not focused on like a specific task or capability of the unit in question it's more about the observer and like what they think seems intelligent um and i that one's weird um then there's the like the 1960s and 1990s and like the following ai winters um those are i think those are like i think those and the weird thing is the one in the 60s like that that basically laid the groundwork for where we are now because all the they just kind of theorized a bunch of techniques and eventually computers caught up so we could actually do it um at the, I, that that's that's kind of i don't know if it's kind of like the science of philosophy kind of thing or like it really i think it's kind of more of a marketing thing because they're like hey we can do that it's almost science fiction but they grounded it on like biomimicry kind of things like neural networks and uh genetic algorithms and i think I think fuzzy logic came out of there, but basically a lot of the concepts we use now and actually know can be used for machine learning came out of those ideas. Um, then there's also like knowledge-based systems. Hey everyone, my name is Aparna, founder of Arise, and the best way to stay up to date with MLOps is by subscribing to this podcast. Dude, well, there's something interesting you said here where it's talking about how it's biomimicry. And that's fascinating to me because I just think about how little 
we know about our own brains and the, our own minds really and how things work. There is like the brain side of things that matter, but then there's that mind that each one of us is inside our own heads. And there are so many questions there that are not answered and I feel like are very far from being answered. And so on one hand, you can do this biomimicry where it is like taking some of this scientific idea and then just putting more compute behind it or saying, all right, we're going to, we're going to try and do this, but in a way that has more power. But I, I think about the idea of like, oh, are we just in our minds? Is it a radio station that we're plugging into and our thoughts are not actually coming from us? And so that's like some philosophical shit right there, right? And then <laughs> you've got, uh, and so then if you think about that, then what are the implications on machine learning and intel artificial intelligence if that is the case? And and then I also think about just the idea of how many of us are like mental health is a huge thing these days, right? And that mental health is so big and so many people have their battles with mental health makes me think that we know so much less than we think we do about the mind and then us expecting that we're going to be able to do anything with artificial intelligence makes me a little bit like that's a tall order yeah I 100% agree with all of that. There's a lot of things that are like our own. We understand the basic like concepts and building blocks of the brain, which is like neural networks. And like GPT-3 is let's just take billions of those and throw it all the information in the unit. Like yeah, that's exactly. on, like the Wikipedia and see what we get. And there's kind of this, it is a definitely a brute force approach and like a million million chimpanzees on typewriters can now make Shakespeare. Like we proved that. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> what do we know about it? And like explainability, like it's also like quickly beyond getting beyond our scope where we're building these things that are too big almost to understand. And that's why explainability is coming into play. So at least we can try to understand the things that we're building, if not our own minds. Um, you also like the thing about, I always feel like the more we learn about the brain, the less I believe in free will because it's like, oh yeah, and there's this, it's your history and your like nature combined together to sh and your environment to kind of shape like how you view the world. And like, you're like, that's kind of cognitive psychology is based on your own thought patterns shape how you exist in the world. And I mean, that's kind of why mental health exists in like more, let's do drug therapy, do more talk therapy. Let's try to change the way we think about things or like, you know, take deep breaths. And like, yes. we don't understand any of this. And it's, we do have this ridiculous amount of control over our own mental state. If like, at least some of us do, I don't know about like, it's, it's tricky. It takes work. It's yeah. like, you could spend your whole life just working on trying to be a good human, let alone trying to build a good fake one. So, <laughs> Like, it's a full-time job just existing, almost, in a lot of cases. I think they're called, like, gurus and, like, yeah. <laughs> Dalai Lama. Like, basically, all they yeah, do is exactly. just, like, I'm just going to be a good human. Yeah, I'm going to work on myself, and that is a full-time job. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting you bring up dualism. Like, um, there's like religious um, connection aside. I I've always liked the idea of dualism because it's it allows for the unexplainable, and I think that's probably a better approach to things complex like intelligence in science. It's like we're going to focus on the things we do know and allow this huge amount of like, we're just not going to be able to understand it. Whether it's like, could be quantum entanglement. Who knows? Like maybe we are like brains living in a jar on another planet. And these are just our meat puppets <laughs> that we walk around with. And, and then we're going to wake up in the jar someday and be like, Whoa, I was wrong the whole time. <laughs> um, but like you, it's, there's so many things that we do know. And then every time we learn something new, it just opens up a whole new thing of, these are all the things now we don't. Um, so it is really interesting. And I do like dualism. In philosophy, I was like, oh, dualism's cool. It, it gives you room for consciousness and the brain. And like, the con does consciousness affect the brain? Or is it from something else? Um, because it adds like extra unobservable things that I guess are entertaining for philosophers. Yeah. Because you can never prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah, like unicorns exist. In epistemology... I think the biggest thing I took away from like studying it was you remember things because they're relevant and salient, like salient, it's like you can understand it, um, or, you know, things because they're relevant and salient, um, and you remember them because they're relevant. Um, so salience is you can understand it because you're never going to really remember or know something if you don't understand it first. Um, so I think that comprehension is kind of this missed park if we're trying to like mimic human intelligence um and then also relevance so like relevance is mostly just a filter to filter out all the unwanted stuff that we don't care about and with machine learning and like deep learning specifically we have to build that kind of relevance model for it by like bounding like that's how it works it's like bounding boxes and color coding like look this stuff this part's the relevant part ignore everything else um i think the salience is the like the understanding of the world is still not really there in a lot of cases like most of the time when i see machine learning and production it's it's like as a sensing tool we're like in terms of like on the way to being like a fully intelligent creature, you've got to like sense your environment and then you have to understand it and act. Um, and a lot of times you can get around this, especially in like reinforcement learning with simulated environments where you can actually just kind of encode everything and you don't worry so much about the sensing part and you focus on the interaction. Um, the understanding is still a big question, I think in those cases. Um, it's like, I, I think it's just a, question in general like how it and a lot of times it's more correlation and not causation and is that really understanding or did they take the wrong lesson away um so i think we have to i really like reinforcement learning specifically because it's kind of building this model of the world um and i think like theoretically um i haven't seen it quite happen yet and it does it's very dependent on the engine, like the reward function. And like that, it, like every time I see like chat GPT-3, they've got like a reinforcement learning function based on like 
oh, the person liked my answer. This must be the right thing to say. I'm like, that's exactly how you you go for the wrong way with like machine learning. Like, oh, they really liked it. It must be the right thing. And like, that's not that's not how we should do it. It should be more empirical. Like, we need an empirical, better empirical gaze. Um, and I think the question is, what is that? And then once we have that, like, entropy is probably a good one. In like Bayesian probability and entropy of the universe, and like understanding the environment, like there are mathematical things that kind of do that, which is um interesting. But like. I don't see them a lot in practice. And I think without looking at those things in terms of like focusing on our understanding, we're not going to get good learning results. Like we're very much like focus on this, focus on this, focus on this. Oh, you didn't learn the thing I yelled at you about for like 3000 e-box. Like what's wrong with you? And instead <laughs> like it's more of, and like, um, like watching babies grow up and children, like they spend the first like, arguably decades just wandering around the world and like trying to understand it but like still look at everything yeah i mean i'm still doing that <laughs> um but like i think there's this this lack of understanding in terms of in general and i i see a lot of things that i was reading recently about like there's been this slow push of like doing simulation first and then moving in like those like algorithms into robotics second where like they oh. have this world that is easier to understand we're not worried about weird sensing techniques do you think we sort of have mismatched expectation of where artificial intelligence is supposed to be is it supposed to be accurate or is it supposed to model the human behavior because oh. if it's supposed to model the human behavior then you have that leeway to give the wrong answers and still be super confident about it and not learn a thing because there are plenty <laughs> of stubborn people who be like, I'm Kurt. Yeah, they learn from us. That's so true. Yeah, I think that's the problem really is like we're trying to mimic human behavior. And my question is like, should we? Um, we're bad at some stuff. Um, and like computers are very good at things. I think there's been this focus on um, and also like the real world. We It's still really hard to teach computers how to live in the real world, like autonomous driving it's kind of been around for a while now, but it's really tricky. And if it goes wrong, yeah. it's pretty bad. So it's like, it's very careful pl things. Um, uh, there's also like the other side is like, oh, autonomous vehicles should just have cameras because humans just have eyes and that is good enough for us. I was like, I don't know if it is. And if you can put on like LIDAR and all kinds of other things on a car, why don't you? Yeah. Um, like there's things machines are good at, like math and things are people are good at. Um, and I think the, the thing is, is the success is like, at least in terms of expectations for now is figuring out where that line falls. Um, and there is like this, it constantly keeps coming up like the singularity and like, oh, artificial general intelligence is right around the corner. And I think I was just reading yesterday. It's like 2030, it's going to be here. And I'm like. I don't know if it's going to be that soon. And also, are you shooting for the wrong thing? Uh -huh. um, I think that's why I like the new, the new push into like hybrid t intelligence. So like you yeah. have a human in the loop or especially with like machine learning development, at least you have a human in the loop and say, 
um, this is wrong. Like Darwin AI is really good at this. I think this is kind of their technique is they're not presenting information to like a lay person. They're presenting information to like a doctor who then they're kind of augmenting a specialist and yeah. helping them in terms of scaling their time and, um, you know, um, what is it like paying attention basically? Cause people get tired and we stop paying attention after so long, but computers yeah. don't, they're effectively like, they always will on. make this. Yeah. They're always on and they're basically making the same kind of decision anytime. And part of that is like making sure they make the right decision. But if you put a human in the light loop and you augment this intelligence, I think that is a much better focus than replacing humans or mimicking humans. I think it augmenting humans is probably the right approach and, better so coming back to the idea of the infrastructure around machine learning and especially when you're looking at this new form of machine learning do you see i mean i know you mentioned the open source toolkit that you guys are using relies heavily on kubeflow is it in your mind if you were to think about uh two years or five years out are there going to be completely new tools that we're using because there are completely new ways of doing AI or is what we're using right now on the, like the developer tool side or the ML ops side going to morph into something new. And so you'll still be using Kubeflow. It's just going to be the next version of Kubeflow takes into account more foundational models and more data and whatever more of the, I guess, data is not the word I was looking for, but <laughs> I think you understand what I'm trying to get at, right? Yeah. Um, I think I, what I like seeing is a slow progression. And like, I don't think Kubeflow is going to go anywhere. I also like two or four years ago said like, oh, PyTorch is definitely going to replace TensorFlow. PyTorch is so much easier. <laughs> but there's a lot yeah. of other things at play in terms of like out with the old and in with the new kind of mentality. And like TensorFlow's got a huge amount of support behind it. And like we still, I still use it. And uh, cause like, and it works with things like whatever I want to do with TensorFlow and Kubeflow now, it kind of works with. And I think that's, it's, it's kind of, and like, so we were like the way we used to do it, like way back in the day, like my first project was like hand coding. Well, I mean, that that was one way to do it. I think I believe I've I've never done it myself, but there was a neural network class where they're like, you can do it yourself, just some math equation, just hand code neural networks. <laughs> like no Yeah, that's awful. Nobody wants to do that. The other one is like hand programming like um like just neurons or uh Yeah, and just making them run through and then without a framework and next came framework. So it's like ease. It's the same principles and just getting easier and easier and easier to do. Um, let the machine do the machine focus part where it's like, yeah, I want to do this 5,000 times and you give me the best result. And that's what like distributed training is. And that's gotten easier. Um, so the tools are shaping up to make it easier for the people who know what they want to do to do what they want to do as quickly as possible. Like this is my goal. Um, I want you to recognize this and we don't even, we barely even need to worry about like what kind of layer or model we're using. Like there's been so much work and development into that. 
in terms of what works and what doesn't. Now it can kind of, there's almost a shelf of like, here, start here, you're gonna do transfer learning, do hyperparameter tuning across the stack and give me the best model. And like those things didn't exist before and it's all built on the same stuff. There's just more options. Um, Qflow and like pipelines, it's like, you're getting into that better. Like, let's take all this DevOps stuff. You gotta change your code, you gotta update stuff. Let's put that into like machine learning approach. So that again is like, it's it's really putting machine learning in production with this like robust set of tools that software engineers know all about. And, you know, deep learning researchers are like, I don't source control, what are you talking about? I just wanna see it recognize a cat and I win. <laughs> so like, it's these, it's this good bit of practice. I think the things I see still are like, edge deployments are still hard. It's really due to like cloud-based stuff's getting super easy, but like if I wanna get this thing here, you still have to figure out those connections. So like those things will get easier. Um, like multiple models running it, like orchestration of multiple models is gonna get easier. So it's I think it's just gonna be building layers and layers and layers. And so this is fascinating because Abby and I were just talking on Tuesday to Alex who wrote a book on DynamoDB and his whole thing that he mentioned was that these days databases have been able to use some of the cloud primitives and make things so much easier because they're leveraging these cloud primitives. In your eyes, it's almost like that same idea is going to be just extrapolated out more. It's like the parts that we recognize give us more advantages are just going to get easier and better and faster and everything that you would want, right? And then from there, we're going to see more exploration or ideas going from someone's mind to reality much quicker. And so that time, I think... Uh, some guys at DoorDash. I'm doing all kinds of name dropping right now. Just forgive me for that. But when we <laughs> talked to some guys at it's quick. DoorDash, they were mentioning that they called it the velocity of ML or basically for them, it's how long does it take to go from idea to production? And so you're just seeing, and if, I, if I'm getting this correct, it's that you're taking everywhere that we can get gains on the efficiency of this are just going to be maxed out more than we can imagine. Yeah, 100%. And DoorDash is actually a really good name to drop because their routing stuff is very good. Like, <laughs> I was reading some of the, the things they published. I was like, ah, this is amazing. You can get they me are. a sandwich and teach me about machine learning? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, they are. They're a great team. Shout out to Hayne, <laughs> who's behind their machine learning platform. But so that's a fascinating one because then it's not like you're disrupting. I mean, one thing that I keep going back to is there has been an explosion of MLOps tools in the last three to five years. And these MLOps tools, are they going to be around in another five years? That's like my big question. Yeah, that's... um. Probably not all of them. There's probably going to be some like coalescing and some merging and like the big companies are probably going to, I mean, like HPE just got 
pachyderm, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. So like, it's going to be things like that where they kind of end up clustering, and you end up with less options. And like the same thing happened, like I don't know, ten years ago with frameworks. It just whenever there's a new opportunity, there's someone has in their head like this is the best way to do it and for better or worse sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong um so like they're probably they're not all going to be around but they're all probably gonna we're all gonna learn something from it and at the end we hopefully have like the best of all of that and like the best proven methods um because a lot of times um like startups and companies are a lot like experimentation anyway and it's just like yeah they're going to try their path and this other company is going to try their path and whoever wins is like the best way. And when you But either way we learn. Yeah, and when you're playing around with projects and definitely like open source tools, are you thinking about that a lot? Like as you're looking into what's out there on the market, how does that play into your like personal projects or just the infrastructure that you feel like you're going to invest time into. Because going back to the beginning of the conversation, when you're trying to evangelize a certain tool or a certain product to people at your job, and the biggest friction that you're getting from people is like, why should I put in the time to learn this? How can you justify to yourself that this is a good use of my time? And how do you choose which ones are? Yeah, it's, I think... One thing I got in the habit of doing and haven't done lately is just like every week try a new tool and just try to evaluate as quickly as possible. Like at the same time, you're not going to learn a oh, new wow. tool that fast, but you can at least like I talked to somebody once at like a developer relations conference and they're like, you got about 20 minutes for someone to, to convince someone to learn to use your stuff. And I'm like, that sounds about right. It's like about as fast as getting a pizza. And you're like, if you're not into it in like 20 minutes, then you're going to go back to your old ways. Like you've got to really, when building a, a like a developer focused tool, you've got to make it um, really like sing and like work right out the gate or else someone you're going to lose someone's time. Um, to me, the best tools um, have like this, dis, what's it called? It's like a design thinking approach. Um, there's a phrase, it's like an iterative deepening of complexity. So like, it's yeah. very shallow at first and like, small you can wins. get stuff done and like you yeah. give the small wins, but like, as you learn more, you understand how much you can actually get out of it. Um, and how deep it can be. Um, I think like Keras is a really good example. Cause it was like, Hey, let's make TensorFlow easier. And like that, uh -huh. it was great. And then it's just, if you want to do more, you just go into the TensorFlow part. Um, and I like, that's, to me, those are the best tools where they start off really simple, but you're, if you want to dig into it, you can. Um, and like those to me have the most promise. Whereas like a lot of things, especially like, um, now I see a lot of no code or low code stuff and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to make it great for you in the back end. And I'm like, but what yeah. if I want to do something that you didn't set up for me? <laughs> It's like you prepared a buffet and you're like, I want something off the menu. And they're like, no, sorry, we don't do that. Yeah. Um, so like those things might not stick around as long, but like the stuff with like the foundation, um, those, those probably stick around longer. And like we a lot a, of them were built on open source stuff. So completely, we had a great conversation or meetup, uh, 
over the summer and the presenter was saying, yeah, the best part about using Vertex AI is that it's managed service. And then they were like, and the worst part about using Vertex AI is it's a managed <laughs> it's service. A managed service, yeah. So <laughs> that's a good. You one. gotta, yeah, you gotta have your trade offs there. I think the thing is, is like, and you kind of mentioned this before. It's regardless if we're, machine learning is getting opened up to new and new, more and more people, and that's kind of the goal of all these tools. And like, um, it's meant to like augment stuff that you want to be doing. And I think. Actually, like Adobe has been doing a lot of really, I don't use it, but like if I were an artist or something, like they're doing tons of cool stuff to like, hey, let's use machine learning to help you do the stuff you want to be doing. If you're a photographer or if you're making music or uh, there's a lot more writing tools out. Um, like I use just a podcast tool. tool. Yeah. There's that podcast tools. Where, yeah. So I think that's the kind of stuff, like the more we see it in uh non-engineers hands the better it is for us because it's all like building and building and building and um yeah eventually you'll be able to just build me a thing to recognize a cat and let me know when it's angry um like we're pretty close to that (laughs) um but then like it's it's kind of whose problems are you solving and how big are they and that's really the focus of all these tools so what do you think is the one thing? Would it be the product? Would it be their penetration in the community itself? Would it be a very good understanding of your customers or building on top of it? What would be the one key winning factor for the companies that make it in the next five years in the MLOps space? Um, That's a good question. I think they're all important, but I do think it's like, Sometimes it's you win by getting a big customer and then you can afford to keep doing stuff. I do think it's, to me personally, it's like a developer relations per- per- person. I have to say it's the product. Like, it, like to me, that's what draws me in. Um, that's not who always gets to make the decision. I do think community is important because without community, you don't know your customer or the customer can't get help or... They feel like they're doing it on their own, which is like, I don't know, like human existentialism, but like, that's what the community is for. So like, sometimes there are products that I think it really is a balance between all three, but for me, it's gotta be like the product. That's excellent. Dude, this has been awesome. I did not expect the conversation to go in so many directions that it went in. It's, it's really cool to get to talk to you about philosophy, about the meaning of intelligence and then wrap it all up with a little ML ops and where we're going in the next couple of years. So this has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Carl. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, awesome. No, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. This is Skylar. I lead machine learning at Health Rhythms. If you want to stay on top of everything happening in ML ops, subscribe to this podcast now. 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 Now.